no matter what happens to us here, you're always with us and that you work all things for our good, Lord. We thank you that, that as your people, we, we rule in this life and in this world, not in the sense that we, we control outcomes and circumstances, but in the sense that, that nothing can happen to us that will not ultimately work for our good. And we come this morning both thankful that we have already received the benefits of Christ, justified in your eyes, made, made sons of the King, uh, given a new life, but also recognizing that we need to, to mature in that. And we ask that, that everything we do this morning would not be out of a heart of just checking off a religious uh, a religious box, Lord, then all of our singing, all of our preaching and teaching and our, our praying even, Lord, that it would be done out of a heart that understands the need to continue to grow into the new life that you've given us, Lord. And that's what we, what we come for this morning. We come hopeful and expectant that you'll continue to do that work in us, changing us from one degree of glory to the next. And Lord, it's because of your faithfulness, both in the past and in the present, that we look forward and can trust in your faithfulness in the future as well. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You all can have a seat. Good morning. Thanks for being here and braving the cold. I know we're missing some who couldn't make it out. But for those of us who are here, we're going we're gonna to get after it this morning. If that's all right. If that sounds okay. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 6. Let me just make a note real quick. I know some of you who are following along with us in the Bible reading plan for this year are thinking, well, I thought we were in Matthew 5 this week, uh, which if that's you, you are correct. Um, I'm just going to back up and explain kind of the preaching side of things for this month. If you missed last week, we are taking the month of January to kind of do a little uh, mini-series on just the topic of, of discipleship and a few aspects of what that looks like what that would call us into last week, if you were here, we talked about how disciples learn. This week, the, the kind of idea or topic will be that disciples pray. That's going to be what we're talking about this morning. Next week, we'll talk about how disciples forgive and then how disciples go. Uh, but that's kind of, from the, from the preaching side, that's kind of how we're going about it. With the Bible reading plan, how that fits into it, those few chapters there that you have for January, uh, it's most of that is the Sermon on the Mount, which is just a little block of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, but not only just the kingdom itself, the people of the kingdom, what kingdom people actually look like. And so that's kind of the, the, the parallel on that side of it uh, with what we're doing on the preaching side. But we're not necessarily uh, preaching through those texts, if that makes sense. We're, we're more uh, following the, the topics that we have picked out for this month. So hopefully that makes sense to you. Um, Matthew 6, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about this idea this morning that disciples pray, and we'll be looking in verses 5 to 13. And so look there with me if you would. Let me read this as we get started. Matthew 6, 5 to 13. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. 
pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, many of you know C.S. Lewis for his, his writings, Chronicles of Narnia, maybe Mere Christianity, uh, or maybe for some of his story, how he was, he was an atheist who converted to Christianity. But less of you probably know the story of his marriage. Uh, not long after his marriage to Joy Davidson, she learns that she has cancer with not long to live. If you, if you read her letters during this time with cancer, you, you can't help but notice all the ups and downs that uh, resemble uh, the, the, the battle with cancer, if you're familiar with that on any level. Joy, she eventually experienced a remission. Everything looked to be on the up and up for a time being, but it was short-lived. And in the summer of 1960, her body finally gave in to the cancer, and she passed away. Lewis, of course, was was devastated by this, and he wrote about this specifically in his book called A Grief Observed. Listen, listen to what he writes here. He says, when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Some raw thoughts. (laughs) Some honest thoughts. As God's people, when we, when we approach this topic of prayer, I think any number of questions pop into our mind, right? Does, does God, does he hear what I have to say? Does God care what I have to say? Does it matter what I say, right? How does, how does God's sovereignty and our responsibility in prayer meet? Isn't God just going to do what he's going to do anyways? Uh, can I really just go pray to God and get whatever I want, Right? And these, these questions, they may seem sort of insignificant and easy to kind of brush off as long as our hearts and minds, uh, maybe in the more mundane parts of life, right, when we're more um, maybe concerned with uh, just temporary, earthly kind of circumstances, arbitrary things. But how about when you're in the position that C.S. Lewis was in? When a loved one is, is deteriorating with terminal illness, or when they just won't respond to the gospel the way that you hope they would. When your world is being turned upside down and you see no way out, then, then, (laughs) all those questions, they hit home, don't they? It doesn't take any bit of mental exercise in that moment to begin asking those questions because they're all that you feel and know in those moments. And it's, it's questions like this that I think God and his loving sovereignty anticipates as he instructs his disciples here on how to pray, how to approach him and how to, how to talk to him. And the answer to all of those questions I want to suggest can only be found when we first stop and consider who we're praying to, how we're to approach him, 
and what we say to him. Who is it that we're, that we're praying to? Is God really a God who just slams the door in our face when we need him? How do we approach him? On what grounds do we stand to come knocking on his door in the first place? And if he opens the door, if he opens the door, then what do we say to him? And these are the questions we're going to answer this morning in our text. First question, who do we pray to? I think the text here gives us two answers. First, it says we pray to a God who sees us. Verses five and six, they begin with this instruction to, to when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. It says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And so there's a, a group of people here, Jesus, he calls them hypocrites, who pray in a certain way. And that could really be the focus of our time this morning is just uh, pray like this, don't pray like this. That's actually some of the language of the text. But, but I think to just focus on the sort of mechanical outworking of it and just the specifics of what they're doing would, would be to fall short in a way of what these verses do for us because it's not just a manual on what to do and what not to do, right? The text actually explains the reasons for us. And that's where these hypocrites, they make a critical error. The explanation of, of why they pray out in front of everyone, it's found in the contrast in verse six. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, pray like this, not like this, but the important part, it's not really where, right? It's to make sure you understand the reason that you should do this and not do that because of who you're praying to, a God who sees you in secret. See, the, the hypocrites, they stand in the street corner and they pray, why? <laughs> to be seen by other people, to be seen by others. They're not really praying to God. They're praying for other people. And this is fundamentally what's wrong with their prayers. Jesus, he's not forbidding public prayer or communal prayer. He's, he's, he's forbidding the desire to impress people in it. That's what's going on here. If prayer is about impressing other people, then they, yes, of course you need to be out in front of everybody. But if prayer is about communion with your father, the relational aspect of it, he sees you. It's, it's, it's relational. If it's about that, well, then it doesn't matter where you are, right? You can pray in the closet for all that matters because he sees you even in secret. This, this relational nature of prayer, it's, it's the grounds for why praying for other people is so foolish and missing the point. Jesus says of the hypocrites who they pretend to, to pray to God, but really everything they're saying, it's for their performance and the opinion that they want other people to see and have of them who they may start their words with dear Jesus, right? But it may as well just be dear everybody. They're praying for everyone. Jesus says of them, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Namely, nothing, right? What is praying to be seen by other people get you? Well, they already have their reward. Someone says, well, I don't have anything. Exactly. <laughs> but if you pray to God who sees in secret, he will reward you. Secondly, we pray to a God who knows us, similar to what's going on in verses five and six with the hypocrites. The Gentiles in verses seven and eight also provide a contrasting example of how we should pray that it, it's not solely rooted just in what they're doing, but how they understand the one that they're praying to. Jesus says in verse seven, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. That's why they use empty phrases so they can be heard. They don't understand who they're praying to. And Jesus says, do not be like them. 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus says here there's a, there's a, there's a temptation, right, to get cute with our praying, to try to flatter God with our knowledge and our, our information that comes out of a lack of understanding of who you're addressing, the God who knows what you need before you even ask of it. The critique here, it's not so much on the quantity of the words they're using, but, but the quality of the words. There's a pointlessness to the words that reflects a misunderstanding of who they're talking to. This is why one commentator, he says, that prayer is not for the purpose of informing God. Rather, prayer expresses to him and to ourselves the fact of our inability to meet our own needs. Biblical prayer is an act of faith, an expression of dependence on God. Meaningless repetition, however, signifies dependence on oneself to manipulate or badger God into compliance. (laughs) Friends, God knows what you need. And he knows about your inability to do it on your own. And he doesn't need to be manipulated or convinced by your, your, your smoothest words into believing what you have to say so that he can decide how he's going to answer. He knows what's true and right. He just wants you to come and ask him because you recognize your dependence on him. Just like a, a, a young child, he doesn't come to daddy and bother to explain the situation, right? Why he needs a bottle, what kind of bottle he needs, how much, how much milk to put in the bottle. He innately just understands that daddy understands all of that, knows what to give him, and so he's free to just come ask. Sometimes very sternly and aggressively, if you're in my house. The question then is not, does he know what you need? And does he know that you can't do it on your own? The question is, do you know what you need? And do you know about your inability to get it on your own? because this will affect your prayers. And what this teaches us is that what and how we pray, it it reveals something about who we're actually talking to. Are we talking to God or are we directing our words indirectly towards other people? And it also reveals something about what we believe about God. Do we come petition to him as if he really is God who knows all things and holds all things in his sovereign hand. Everything else is going to flow from that. But if we stop and think, it inevitably leads to this question of how we're supposed to approach him, right? If this is the God that we pray to, the God who sees me everywhere and knows everything I need before I ask, then on what grounds do we dare come knocking at his door in our time of need? And, and what kind of energy are we bringing in that moment, right? Is it aggressiveness? Is it passivity? Is it uncertainty maybe? This is the second thing we'll consider, not just who we pray to, but, but actually how we approach him. And the answer that the text gives us is that we, we approach him as father. The good example on how Jesus instructs us to pray, contrasted with the bad examples of the hypocrites and Gentiles, begins in verse 9 when Jesus says, pray then like this. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the way we approach God, it begins with this right confession of who we're talking to, and this defines sort of the nature of the relationship and the way that we approach him, right, as our father. So not only does God, he sees us in secret, not only does he know everything that we need before we ask, he's our father. And this is, this is 
good, after all, because if he, if he sees us and knows us, but he has no commitment to us or our well-being, then what good do those qualities of God really do to us, right? But it's the nature of our relationship to God as our Father that, that adds weight to those realities about who God is, because it defines the nature by, with the, by which those characteristics of God actually relate to us and why they matter in our lives. We often read these two statements in this verse, our Father in heaven and hallowed be thy name. We read those as, as two separate statements, but they really can't be separated in the sense that the hallowing of God's name among us is the grounds, understand this, is the grounds by which we can call him Father in the first place. These two realities of God as Father and the honoring of God's name among his people, these were two aspects of the same underlying problem that God's people had in the Old Covenant, which was a lack of holiness, a lack of holiness. Let's look briefly at how this applies to both of them. First, Israel fails at their role as God's son because of their unholiness. We don't have time to fully flesh out the entire uh, theme and idea of sonhood in the Bible, but it's, it's fundamental language for the type of relationship that humanity is supposed to have with God. Uh, Adam, he fails in maintaining that status by failing to trust God. This failure of Adam, it's going to be restored through the promise of Abraham, which is somehow going to come through the people of Israel. We know all this, and that's ultimately realized in the person and work of Christ. Colossians 1, you'll remember, it talks about Christ as being, among other things, the firstborn. It's the idea of inheritance and status with God, what Adam lost with his sin. But before Christ comes and ushers in the new covenant, Israel holds this, this function and position and relationship under the old covenant. You'll remember that when God commands Pharaoh to let his people go in Exodus 4, he, commands them, uh, he compares them to Pharaoh's firstborn son. You remember this? That's what he says. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And so that's how he, he defines his relationship to his people. And the purpose of the Exodus here, part of it that we see is that they, that they would come out and they would serve the Lord. We also see in that narrative that, that part of the purpose is they would come and be able to worship God on his mountain. Those are the two things that Adam was given to do in the garden was to worship and to serve him. And Israel is to be the restoration of that except that we read the story and we see very clearly that they're not, right? God brings his firstborn son out of Egypt, but they, they fail to uphold that role and status as firstborn son of God. Listen to the language that Hosea 11 uses as it provides sort of a prophetic critique to how well Israel is functioning in their role as sons. When the Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But... The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And this, this reality of Israel's failure to uphold and maintain their status and position as God's son, it's exactly why the Lord says that his name has been blasphemed among the nations. This is the second aspect of this. Israel's unholiness, it results in a failure in their function as God's firstborn son, but it also causes the dishonoring of God's name among all the nations. God's name being blasphemed, it's significant because his name in the Bible, it's attached to his very nature and character. To blaspheme his name is to blaspheme him, essentially. And we see and hear this idea, I think, all the time in our culture. You hear people talk about being disrespected, and they describe it as something like being called out of their name, right? Have you heard this? Uh, Snoop Dogg, 
As one example, he apologized for going after Gail King. He said specifically, sorry for the language I used and for calling you out of your name. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, that short little uh, basketball player we traded Kyrie Irving for, which was tragic in itself, but we won't get into that this morning. After he went into the stands to confront a fan who was heckling him, he said in a post-game interview that he wasn't going to be disrespected and that he was taught at a very young age never to be called out of his name. Now, why is this, of all things, something to be supremely offended by, right? Especially in our culture. Well, because it's, it's, it's an attack on not just any external kind of surface level things about you or something that you've done, but on the very essence of who you are. That's what it is. And that's how the Bible understands it in relation to God as well. Listen to the way that the book of Ezekiel talks about not only this problem, but how the Lord's going to fix it. Starting in Ezekiel 36, verse 20, it says, But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and they had to go out of this land. Talking about the promised land there. They failed to keep the covenant, so they're repeatedly taken out of out of the land, and this makes God look bad because he promised it to them, and he promised to give it to Israel, but now they're being taken out. Verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. Therefore, it is not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Okay, so just remember, follow with me. The problem in both Israel's status as sons and the honor of God's name, both are due to Israel's unholiness under the old covenant. That's the problem. But God says here, I'm about to change that, right? I'm not going to stand for my name being trashed by the unfaithful witness of my people. I'm going to fix that problem. And how is he going to do that? Well, it's not by the people suddenly just being holy in and of themselves, right? Verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How is God going to solve the problem of his name being blasphemed by his unholy sons? by making them holy through the giving of his spirit and a new covenant. And we won't fill in all the the specific details and ways that this happens, but we know that the way God ultimately does this, it's it's through Christ. It's through the perfect son who he fulfills that function and does what Adam and Israel did not and who restores the relationship that was lost because of sin. It's nothing less than the work of Christ then that allows us to not only say our Father, but also, hallowed be thy name. And so let's come back and just answer the question. <laughs> How do we approach the God who sees us in secret and who knows everything we need before we ask? Only on the merits of Christ. You begin to see the difference in how Jesus instructs us to pray and how the hypocrites and Gentiles pray, friends. We don't approach God on the merits of people's opinions about us. We don't approach God on the merits of, of the words that we use. We approach him on the merits of Jesus. Sharing in the life of Jesus, relating to God as sons, because we are now in him. That's what prayer is. 
This is why Jesus says, not your father, like he did in verses 6 and 8. See that? But our father. Yours and mine, the same. Friends, far from being just sort of a, kind of a throwaway phrase, I think, as we often treat it, to pray in the name of Jesus, it's not just meant to signal the people to open their eyes, right? That's not what's going on there. It's to effectively say that Jesus Christ himself and only is the grounds by which I come to the Father and the grounds upon which I expect an answer from him. It's the assurance that we have that when I, when I need him, God doesn't just slam the door in my face. As much as it may feel that way sometimes, the door is not bolted inside because we come to him on the merits of Christ. And this is the foundation by which we can, we can come to him in confidence and in hope and in assurance that not only does he hear me, he also cares for me and works all things out for my good. And so we pray to the God who sees us and who knows what we need. That's whose door that we're, that we're knocking on. We come to his door. We approach him on the merits of Christ. That's how we approach him. Now the third and final question in light of all of that, if he's, if he's going to open the door, right, which he will, if he's going to open that door, then what do we actually say to him? And this is where we begin to just walk through kind of the prayer that the Lord lays out here. In a lot of ways, I think we've, we've done the hard groundwork, right? But now let's think quickly about each of these specific things that Jesus instructs us to actually say to our Father when we come to him. I'll give you, I'll give you four specific things Jesus says to pray for. The first thing Jesus says to pray for is God's kingdom. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to pray for the kingdom to come? I think the second part of it actually qualifies what that means. He says, for the will of God to be realized. That's what it means for the kingdom to come down. This has ramifications, of course, both internally and externally to us. Externally, it may mean for the salvation of lost souls or, or the restoration of all things in the world. We know that the Lord's redemption, it doesn't just include our individual souls, but, but for the fullness of believers to come in and, and also the restoration of the entire cosmos. And then every day that passes by, it's one day closer to when God makes his kingdom fully realized. And so we pray to that end. But the prayer, it's also, it's also for an internal reality to take place, right? In the same way that the, the light drives out the darkness all around us in the world, uh, we ask that light to continue to drive out the darkness of our own hearts. This same tension of the already accomplished yet not yet fully realized work of Christ out there in the world, when we look inside our own souls, we see the exact same reality. Amen? We're divided people who, on one hand, have been called out into the light, but, but at the same time, we see that the darkness of sin is still following us around at every turn. And God's will for both in this is the same, that the light of the kingdom would overcome the darkness. Uh, this is a scary prayer, to be honest with you, for the kingdom to come. Uh, not so much because of what we're asking to happen, I think, but, but more so because of the way that we know the Lord often intends and does mean to accomplish his will. Jesus modeled this specific prayer on his way to the cross when he says in the garden, remember this, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cross. But this is what he says right after that. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Same language. The kingdom, God's will, it doesn't come down into the world or into our hearts. Understand that by going around the cross, but by going through it. And while it may accomplish the ultimate good, it's not void of the suffering that it will one day ultimately defeat. I love this quote from from Sibs. He says, whatsoever is good for God's children, they shall have it, right? That's the kingdom coming down. For all is theirs to further them to heaven. Therefore, if poverty be good, they shall have it. If disgrace be good, they shall have it. If misery be good, they shall have it. If crosses be good, they have them. For all is ours to serve our greatest good. Never around the cross. Through the cross. Just like Jesus. Next, we pray for God's provision. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, If praying for the kingdom was scary on any level, I think this one is, is or should be humbling. It's asking God for provision for something we need to get us through each and every day. And, and something that stuck out to me about this, just as I was reading it and thinking about it this week, is that it's, it's, it's actually a corporate prayer, right? Give us, which means it's not necessarily just about me getting what I need for the day. It's about all of us having what we need. And then on an individual level, it's about how the Lord is going to provide for each and every one of us, yes, but, but sometimes through the church, right? Through the body. I've heard it said like this, God sometimes withholds his grace so that we may fetch it from one another. (laughs) We oftentimes think, I think, that the Lord's grace or his provision is something that's going to just sort of drop out of the sky one day. But I think he intends that, that needs like this, when present, would often be met through his body, through the church, in the same way, I think it's a poor portrait of the gospel if we, if we have an unrepentant uh, adulterer serving in our congregation somewhere, so is it a poor p- picture of the gospel if we have partners among us who are unable to have their daily bread. But there's a spiritual nourishment in view here as well. We remember the words of Jesus in his temptation in Matthew 4, quoting out of Deuteronomy 8. He says, "'Man shall not live by bread alone,' but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The significance of Jesus quoting those words in that narrative, uh, particular in Deuteronomy, is that what the, what the Lord says the purpose was for him providing manna for his people in the wilderness. That's the purpose of what's going on there. You all remember that story? For 40 years, right? For 40 years, his people are in the wilderness. Every morning they come out and they collect manna for that single day. No more, no less. They collect manna for one day. One of the commentaries I read on this said they were always just one day away from starvation. <laughs> Think about that. One day away from starvation, yet they ate well during all those decades. That's what daily dependence on God looks like in all things. And the Lord says that the purpose for that whole thing, that whole, that whole situation Israel's in, all 40 years of that, was that he might make them know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, our physical dependence on God, rightly understood, it only points us to our spiritual dependence on him. When you sit down at the table every night and rightly thank God for the food that he's put there, understand it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality that we all share, every single one of us. That we don't just need sustained physically, we need sustained spiritually. 
every day. And on a practical note here, it's, it's, this is another thing that stuck out. It's very interesting how much of the prayer, it's both asking the Lord for something that also requires something from us, right? We ask the Lord for bread, but we have to go make it. We ask the Lord for forgiveness, but we have to extend it as well. This is how God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility always meet, right? On, on our kind of finite human perspective level, as we look out into the world, see it, see it happening, yes, we're the ones doing it, right? But when we come and read the scripture and we kind of pull the curtain back and see it from the divine perspective, it's always God. In the same way then, that God's people are to provide for the physical needs of each other, maybe more pressing and maybe more relevant to us here at Mercy Hills, that God's people are also to provide for the spiritual needs of one another. Feeding each other the word of God constantly as we find ourselves spiritually dependent on its testimony to the person and work of Christ every day. Thirdly, we pray for God's forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We know that from other places in Scripture, this is not asking our Father for something that we don't already have, right? In Christ, we have been, we have been completely forgiven. He's already forgiven us, and that's not, it's not a fluctuating reality. Uh, <laughs> i never forget the story of a college teammate of mine. This is his junior season, mind you. He's already been on our team for two seasons. Uh, my coach told him after he posted the roster, right? So we have a fall tryout. He posts the roster at the end of that. My coach came up and told him that he had scratched his name off the list a few times before finally leaving it on. <laughs> you can imagine not the most uh, inspiring way to go into a new season, right? But for some of us, all of us perhaps at times, this is how we often think about our relationship to God. As if he's just kind of sitting up there watching us go about, about our days, unsure, and constantly changing his mind about us. But the Lord's forgiveness, forgiveness of us, it does not change or waver or go away. It's not contingent upon anything we do, including us extending forgiveness to others. And so what's the point of this prayer? Again, I think we have to rely on our understanding of the way that we relate to God that informs what we say, right? We don't ask for, for forgiveness in a salvific sense, but in a relational kind of familial sense. We ask for it from God as Father. It's the idea here of God's long suffering with us and his ongoing heart of forgiveness towards us that we're dependent on. It's to recognize the need, not, not just for forgiveness for a one-time action on the part of God, but as the definitive nature by which God sees us and relates to us in Christ. It's to recognize that in the moment that Jesus should be accusing us, right? As he stands, hangs naked on a cross between two, two sinners, he should be asking for the Lord's judgment upon us, being humiliated before the world, but his cry to the Father, it's anything but that. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And not only that, but this continues to be his cry on our behalf for all of our lives as not just our Savior, but our advocate and our intercessor. And our posture towards other then, this is the point, our posture towards other, it's simply to reflect that. When we experience sin against us from other people, our response is not to be an inconsistent one of judgment or shaming, but one that mirrors our relationship with our Father and Christ's words of forgiveness on our behalf.
Fourth and finally here, we pray for God's protection. Verse 13, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, A quick just textual note here. I know some translations, many of you probably have this in your Bible, will say deliver us from the evil one here. Uh, The original language, it's somewhat ambiguous here. Either translation is really viable and acceptable. In terms of meaning, though, when we consider both, it really doesn't affect the idea that's being portrayed. Uh, If we think about Jesus's temptation in Matthew 4, when he experiences the temptations of the devil, uh, temptations of evil, sorry, it's in no way disconnected from the evil one himself, right? And so the two very much go hand in hand. This prayer, it's highly theological as the others are while acknowledging on one hand that we can relate to God as Father because he's made us holy by his Holy Spirit. We also acknowledge at the very same time that we're still tempted by evil all around us. But even then, they can't be separated because we can't acknowledge that we're really tempted with sin without also being faithful and acknowledging that we're completely free from its desires over us. And we have the power to withstand it in Christ. As much as we may feel its grip on us at times, it has absolutely no claim over us. I love the way that one theologian puts it. He says, all the devils in hell cannot force us to sin. Satan works by suggestions, stirring up humors and fancies, but he cannot work upon the will. He says, we betray ourselves by yielding before he can do us any harm. Uh, It reminds me of an old children's story about the king and his hawk. Do you remember this? The king, uh, he's been out to battle, conquering nations and countries. One morning after he's finished his wars, he, he rides out into the woods and having been gone most of the day, grows thirsty. And so he comes up upon this spring of water between two mountains and takes his silver cup from his hunting bag. He leans down into the spring to fill it up. And just as he raises the cup up to his mouth to take a drink, his favorite hawk that was helping him hunt swoops down and knocks it out of his hand. Annoyed, obviously, he fills the cup up again. And just as he goes to raise it to his mouth, the hawk again knocks it out of his hand, right? Uh, And this happens a few more times until finally, angry, very angry and annoyed and frustrated, the king, he does this, but he waits for the hawk to descend upon him and with one quick sweep of his sword, ends the life of his favorite hawk. The problem though is that the cup, it falls between two rocks where he couldn't reach it. And so determined to get a drink, he climbs up the steep bank from where the water trickled. And as he gets to the top, he sees a huge dead snake of the most poisonous kind lying dead in the water. We're often motivated in our sin by the emotions and desires of the moment, right? Of the moment. And while the Lord is willing and able to grant this prayer to us, to to protect us from temptation, we often find ourselves unwilling to let him, yielding to the suggestions that the devil presents to us before he even does any harm to us. But while the Lord's protection, it may not always feel cuddly, may not always feel convenient, may not always feel good. It won't always give us what we most want in that moment. It's there for us if we simply trust in it and depend on it. Worship team, you can come up. We're gonna close with this. It's interesting as we close this morning to think about the fact that in all that we've said, 
our prayers, they're not so much about just getting what we desire right, but about actually being changed into the type of people that God intends us to be. And it's sort of a catch-22, right? Because the more that we become the type of people that God intends for us to be, the more and more we actually get what our hearts desire. That's the idea behind the psalmist's words in Psalm 37, verse 4. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so the questions for us are, do you enjoy the world, or do you want the kingdom and all that that entails, also the way that the Lord brings it? Do you often find yourself anxious and worried, or do you trust the Lord to provide for you one day at a time? Do you recognize your need for spiritual nourishment as much as physical? Do you extend the same forgiveness that you trust the Lord for every day? And do you really want his protection from sin in your life? Friends, the challenge for all of us is to let our prayers here not be shaped by our sin or the flesh or the world and the temporary kind of external things that it, that it puts upon us, but by a robust understanding of who we pray to, how we approach him, and what his will is for our lives, not just our own. Amen? Let me pray and we'll close in song here. Lord, we thank you again for everything that you've done for us in Christ, Lord, that you, you didn't just sit casually by and observe what's going on, Lord, you, you entered into the story and you did for us what we could not. And we thank you that we, not by anything that we do, Lord, but simply by believing and trusting in you, that we can come to you and relate to you as Father, that we can approach you in prayer, that we can, we can know you on a, on a real personal level. We thank you for that. And Lord, help us in everything that we do that we would just see it as an outflow of that already accomplished reality, Lord. We understand that you're taking this somewhere, that there's work to be done, that there's maturity to be, to be attained, Lord. But help us not to fall into the lie that, that it's something we do on our own. Help us to trust in you, that in all of these things, you really are continuing to change our hearts. We thank you that you're a God who, who doesn't put the weight of performance on us, doesn't put the weight of people's opinions upon us, that we're free from all of that in Christ and that we're free to come ask of you whatever we need as your children, that you hear us, that you care for us, that it matters, Lord, that you work through it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.